Hi, this is Dave Summers, and welcome to AMA Edgewise. Alan Gannett is founder and CEO of TrackMaven, a company that works with large brands to help them uncover the meaning revealed by the patterns within their marketing data. He's worked for major brands including Microsoft, Marriott, Saks Fifth Avenue, Home Depot, Aetna, Honda, and GE. He has been on the, quote, 30 under 30, unquote, list for both Inc. and Forbes and is author of the book we're going to be discussing today, The Creative Curve, which is published by Penguin Random House. And actually, before the microphones were turned on, Alan and I were discussing whether or not he was actually the youngest person we've ever <laughs> interviewed. If not, he's extremely, uh, extremely close to it. Well, Alan, welcome to AMA Edgewise. Thanks for having me. It was great to get a pass from middle school to be here today. <laughs> I know, so I exactly. appreciate it. Yeah. Right. And who's the, who's the guy outside who's like exactly. waiting for the you to wake, it's you, a wake you to yeah, take you back guardian, to study hall? Guardian nauseum, yeah. Any hall. But, but no, no age discrimination going on here. Let's get <laughs> that humor. Protected class, yeah. Let's get that HR humor. jokes are out of the way. Out of the way here. Before we start, just a quick question. What is TrackMaven? So TrackMaven is a six-year-old marketing analytics company that I started that basically we do two things. One, we have our own big data platform where we suck in data from big brands, marketing organizations, and we help them figure out, okay, what's working, what's not working, what you should do more of. And then we also have a consulting team that if you don't have your own in-house analysts, we can actually look at the data, mine it for you, figure out what are the things you need to change about your marketing so it's a lot of fun. We get to geek out about marketing, consumer preferences and taste, and all that good stuff. You help people sort of figure out what they've got in their data. Yeah, exactly. What are the patterns, what are the stories that you should be telling from your data, and not only like what's going well, but also what you can improve on. Patterns is a term that's going to come up again a little bit later in this interview here. Most people feel that they, they live in the shadow of heroic, creative people, people like the founders of Pixar or Albert Einstein, who could do these incredible thought experiments in his head, and people like Steve Jobs, just the embodiment of heroic, creative souls. Now, is the myth, I'm going to call it a myth, and I'm not going to say a myth implies untrue. I'm just going to say myth being mythic. Is the myth of the heroic creative helpful and inspirational, or is it daunting and disempowering to average people like me? Why do you suppose? It's wildly destructive. I mean, basically, we have this notion in Western culture, especially, that creativity, and it hasn't always been like this, but that creativity is basically the province of a few sort of like semi-divine, godlike figures who, you know, are struck with these lightning bolt ideas. We talk about inspiration. We talk about the muses. We talk about all these things. And there's these people up on a pedestal, and we put them on the cover of magazines, and we talk about them with a sense of reverence. Then there's all of us normies. Yeah, the rest of us. The rest of us. And we have no chance. Yeah, we have no chance. And we talk about these people in this sort of all-like state. And the issue is that for a lot of people, the result is they stop before they start. They go, well, you know, it's not that easy for me, so I'm not going to do it. It's not just coming to me. And the book was all about this question of, like, is that actually true? Is that actually how creativity works? As, as promised, pattern, pattern recognition. We humans, as a species, almost sound like computer programs, you know, <laughs> recognizing that pattern. You know, how, how can it become a superpower for us if we learn how to leverage it properly? One of the things I think is so interesting is that the disconnect between what we think creativity is and what we actually know from science is huge. There's this massive, massive gap. So creativity has been studied in the sciences for the last 
30, 40 years across psychology, neuroscience, anthropology, sociology. Like, it's actually a very well-studied phenomenon. We know a lot about how it works, and we actually find there's a lot of patterns that underlie creativity. So when I talk about creativity, I think one of the important things to realize is that there's two different types of creativity that academics talk about. One is lowercase c creativity, which is just creating something new. It's just creating something. The other is uppercase c creativity. This is creating something that's both new and valuable. That's what we all want, right? When we're creating art, when we're creating businesses, when we're creating things, we want to create things that are actually valuable, that society actually recognizes as having worth. And the issue for us is that value is a social phenomenon. What is valuable is what we all agree is valuable. Something can't be valuable just for itself existing. And so the result is we actually have to study and look at, well, what drives that perception of value? What drives consumer taste? What drives consumer preference? What you find is that there's this really fascinating pattern that emerges. So scientists have found that there's these two urges that drive consumer preference. One is this urge to find things that are familiar. See, we're scared of the unfamiliar. We're wired to be fearful of the things that are unknown because they might hurt us. Think about when you were a prehistoric cave dweller or your ancestors. Apologies. Your ancestors were prehistoric cave dwellers. I know. <laughs> And, you know, you saw two caves, one which you've never, ever been in before and one which you've slept in multiple times. You're not going to go in the one you've never seen before because you might die. So let's not do that. Similarly, even when you come back home from vacation, you stayed in a really nice hotel, but it's still nice to get back home. There's something about the familiar that feels safe. We, we like that. We're fearful of the unfamiliar, and so finding the familiar is good. But then it turns out we have this other urge. We also have this urge to seek out things that are novel to find things that are new. And this is because of the potential reward from them. Think about when you were a hunter-gatherer and you saw a new berry in a field that you'd never seen before, sort of looked like a weird strawberry. You're like, okay, like this could be my new source of dinner or breakfast or lunch, whatever it is, I'm going to eat this. And so these two urges are seeming contradiction. We are fearful of the unfamiliar because of risk, but we also seek out the novel because of reward. This yeah. does not compute. Right. And the result is what you find is that these two urges, this contradiction, drives this really fascinating pattern where it turns out that the ideas we like the most, the concepts, the things, whatever it is, are actually a balance of the familiar and the novel. They're familiar enough to be safe, novel enough to be interesting. And so you see this over and over again with creative products where the ideas that actually take off are not the ideas that are radically new. They're actually ideas that have one foot in familiarity and one foot in the novel. Think about the first Star Wars. There's a Western in space. Think about right now in New York, there's that whole trend around sushi burritos, right? There's sushi but in a burrito form. You see this over and over again that actually when you look at creativity, the pattern starts to emerge. It's actually the story of incremental mm -hmm. or marginal improvement. Sure. That's actually what the great creatives do. They don't make these big leapfrog improvements. Mm -hmm. That's actually too scary for us. Sure. And so creativity, when you start digging into it, you find there's all these patterns like that that academics have been studying for years, but we still think creativity is this mystical, magical thing sure. that has no rhyme or reason. Kirby Ferguson has a web video series. It's a couple years old now, but every now and then he does updates, and it's called Everything is a Remix. And oh, it's, yeah. It's, it's that type of thing. I already thing. love it. Yeah. Oh, I mean, this is Kanye West. That, you know, I hate quoting Kanye West, but he just tweeted out that great artists take an update, and this is so true, and you see this in that... Since consumer preference is driven by the blend of familiarity and novelty, one of the big differentiators between great creators and aspiring creators 
is their comfort with taking, with imitating, with remixing. So for the book, what I did is the first half, I interviewed all the leading academics in creative research. And I tell sort of like, it's sort of like a Mythbusters for all the creativity sure. myths. The second half, I interviewed 25 living creative giants. So these are like people like Ted Sarandos, the chief content officer of Netflix, Pasek and Paul, the songwriting duo who did La La Land, Dear Evan Hansen, and The Greatest Showman, Nina Jacobson from Walt Disney Motion Pictures. And what was so interesting is that these great creatives, the people at the top of their field, are actually some of the most comfortable with imitation. Sure. They know that everything's a remix. They know yeah. that everything is taking something and adding a new twist to it right. and know a true idea is original. I think aspiring creatives really struggle with that. I think aspiring creatives are like, what is my big new novel innovation? But yet, you know, we're looking even right now, if you look in the news, Bird, the scooter company, just is raising money at a $2 billion valuation. It didn't exist two years ago. And, you know, it's like Uber for scooters. Like, that's how they describe right. it. And it's a the- remix. And theoretically, they just got kicked out of San Francisco. Yeah, theoretically. So, but it wh- seems to work out. Whatever. This is cool stuff. Uh, there have been several well-known, highly documented creativity slash design failures. <laughs> now, certainly some of these ideas were risky, but someone had the courage to, to greenlight their production. Do you have any observations on learning from failure or becoming risk tolerant? Mm. So one of the things I thought was interesting is that when I was interviewing these great creatives, one of the things that stuck with me is that they're all very comfortable with the notion that creativity is in part this social contract, this relationship with the audience, that since we're talking about uppercase C creativity, we want to create something that people actually care about. Mm -hmm. It's actually not just creating for ourselves. A lot of aspiring creatives say we're just creating for ourselves. I think that's a cop-out. Like You create things as you want people to experience them and have a feeling or an emotion from them. And these great creatives know that. And so one of the things they do is they actually solicit external feedback very, very early. And often, they do it over and over again. You see this in, you know, for example, even the movie industry. You know, We think of a screenwriter going and writing a screenplay sort of you know, in a writer's room somewhere. But the reality is they're getting feedback throughout the process. When movies are made, they do all these test screenings to actually see how they work. And they actually take that feedback very seriously. You know, for example, the movie Fatal Attraction won all these Academy Awards, great in the box office. The original ending that the writer had wrote, when they tested the movie in front of audiences, the audience hated it. So the ending that we think of that made Fatal Attraction this sort of like psycho thriller drama was like literally the result of audience feedback. Mm -hmm. It wasn't this pure creative process. Mm -hmm. I talked about in the book, I spent a day with the flavor team at Ben & Jerry's and you know the Ben and Jerry's flavor team is so interesting because first of all, what an amazing job. Mm-hmm. Second of all, one thing I just think is like sketchy is somehow they're all skinny. So I think there's something something going on. They That's figured out right. some secret. That's yeah. totally not right. But what was so interesting to me is that they have some of the best chefs in the world, some of the best food chemists in the world, some of the best food scientists. But yet their process is all about listening to their audience. They actually do email surveys where they come up with flavor ideas. And they ask people two questions. One, how lucky are you to buy this flavor? And two, how unique is it? Mm-hmm. Which is basically how familiar is it and how novel is it? Because if they just asked how lucky are you to buy it, then they ended up with all salted caramel brownie chocolate fudge flavors, mm-hmm. which eventually would make the brand stale. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting, they have this whole data-driven process, but throughout the entire life cycle, they keep listening to the audience. So, for example, they told me the story of failure where... 
they did this flavor that was popcorn and M&Ms, basically, which if you've ever been in the movies and done it, it's amazing. If you haven't, try it out. It's great. Sweet and salty. And it tested really well in the email surveys. It tested really well when they made samples. It did, it did really well in the whole innovation cycle. But then when they launched it, they started getting all these calls and they started getting all this social media feedback where people were like, um, the popcorn's soggy? And it turned out that when you put popcorn in ice cream and you ship it to the stores and they, you're in shelves for a week or two and then they go home, the moisture starts seeping in and the popcorn gets kind of gross. So this was a failure. It was a big mistake. They had to pull it from the shelves. But from that, they did learn that one of the things you can do is if you put something that's hard in ice cream, it gets soft. So now what I thought was really interesting was you're at the Ben & Jerry's lab, the cookies, when they put in ice cream, they're hard cookies. But when they come out in the actual pint, they're these soft, chewy, it tastes mm -hmm. kind of like cookie dough. And so this failure actually drove an insight mm -hmm. about how you can actually do something more interesting. But if they weren't listening to their audience, if they didn't have that feedback loop, they'd never actually get there. So I think failure is important in the creative process, but the only way to learn from it is to actually listen and solicit it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we're looping back around on a topic we've already discussed, but I'm, I'm interested in your point of view on this. Do creative undertakings take place in the minds of individuals, in your experience, or on the whiteboards and post-it notes of groups or teams? I think it's both. I think what, one of the things you find with creativity is that I think we have this notion of the singular genius. And I definitely think that there are important roles that people play in the creative process that are distinct. But I think we often overlook, because of the media narrative around genius and creativity, we often overlook the fact that creativity is such a social phenomenon. Like we talk about Steve Jobs, like he's on the cover of these magazines, you know, there's all these profiles of him, but like literally on day one, he had Steve Wozniak. The first month that Apple existed, they had multiple employees. Elon Musk has like the world's best rocket scientist working for him. Mm -hmm. I think it was funny, you know, writing a book where like my name's on the cover, but you have an editor, an agent, feedback readers, research assistant, copy editors, proofreaders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's this entire group collaborative process. There's a marketing team and a publicity team. There's all these different people that go into it. And so ultimately, when you're talking about creativity, okay. I think it's very hard to talk about creativity as a purely singular act because the reality is no one can do it themselves. I, well, but how about this? And see if this, if this works for you. I understand the busload of people that were required to bring your book to fruition, but they're your ideas. You had to do the homework you had to either create the team or find the people who knew the people who knew the people to make that happen. So maybe it's more of a chemical reaction of creativity is indiv individual things, but the implementation and the deployment of, of creative thought or, or innovation is absolutely has to be by its very nature, be a, a group or team or organizational type of idea. Sure. And I think the, the complication you get into is like, think about, I profile in the book, Pasek and Paul, and, you know, having all this success with Dear Evan Hansen, and, you know, they wrote the music and lyrics, and it's a musical. Yeah. So like, that's pretty important, yeah. right? But then, well, what about the director? Right. What about the book writer? What about the executive yeah. producer? What about the financier? Like, how do you decide, right? It turns out, well, if any of those weren't great, yeah. And this is actually one of the things I think that people struggle with when it comes to creativity. You see this a lot in business, mm -hmm. is that a high-performing business, really these days where we have so much transparency, you know, consumers have so much voice, you kind of have to be good at everything. Sure. 
we're not in the days anymore where there's asymmetric information between us and our consumers where we can have a mediocre product but great marketing covered up. Eventually, that comes home to roost. Mm -hmm. These days, what you find more so than ever is you really have to be perfect across every aspect of your business, across every aspect of your creative endeavor. And so the stakes are very, very high right now. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's where the team component, really figuring out how do you build those effective teams. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I found that I thought was interesting in the book was when I interviewed these great creatives, one of the things they did really well that I think a lot of managers struggle with is they're very, very comfortable with acknowledging their weaknesses and filling them in, Right. right? It's not about finding like, Who's that collaborator that I gel with? Like talk about Pasek and Paul. So it's Benj Pasek and Justin Paul. They're like the most opposite people of all time. Benj Pasek, when you talk to him on the phone, is like you can hear him sort of like bouncing up and down. Like he's all big ideas. He's all energy all the time. Justin Paul is like quiet. He's subdued. When you interview him, you have to be like, Justin, what do you think? Right. It's like pull him into the interview. Right. But he's very systematic. He's very process oriented. Sure. Either of them by themselves, would they be as successful? Yeah. Right? And so I think managers sometimes struggle with that. We tend to say, A, we're either intimidated by people who have strengths that we don't have. Or B, the other problem is that we look for people who we gel with. And oftentimes it's people who are very similar to us. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem too. It's interesting stuff. I read, it was like maybe five, six years ago, I read a terrific biography of Walt Disney. Mm. And the, again, the myth, the legend, the organization, the cultural, (laughs) you know, monument that is Walt Disney would not exist if it weren't for his brother, Roy. Totally. Roy is a huge part of the story. Exactly. So, but it's interesting that one would get the spotlight, but theoretically he would have been a complete and utter failure many times over if it weren't for Roy. And, And we see this, I think, especially in creative fields, there's a commercial and business value to putting up a singular face of a company of initiative or project. I mean, it's just much, much harder to build a narrative around like five different people. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you see this with, you know, Facebook for a long time. Like if you talk to people who are executives of Facebook, like Cheryl, like runs that company. Yeah. 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 Like Mark is like professionally Mark. Sure. And like your job is to be Mark Zuckerberg. And that's fine. (laughs) But I think sometimes the sort of mass audience doesn't really see past that because there's a bunch of PR people who their yeah. jobs. It's interesting to up. see when some of those people try to change gears and become yes. something they're not. Yes. And I, I don't want to name names, but I can't <laughs> help it. I'm sorry. Do we, it. Might, we might need to edit this out. But <laughs> case in point for me is somebody like Steve Ballmer, mm. who, who I admire to no end. Okay, done some remarkable things. But when he tried to evolve into sort of Microsoft's Steve Jobs or yep. Microsoft's inspirational leader or something like that, it just didn't work. Totally. And that's one of the things I think again is like. When you look at building a team and you look at building up a leadership organization, you really have to be very mindful of the fact that people play different roles, Mm -hmm. and that's okay. And I think a lot of managers, and I had this when I first started the company, is you try and do everything, right? You try and you don't want to give away the Legos. You want to try and be all things. I think it's okay to specialize. It's okay to say, here are the things I'm good at. Here are the things I'm not good at. I've experienced this as my own, you know, sort of development as CEO is a few years ago, I hired a president because I realized that like the things I'm really good at are being market facing. I'm great with customers. I'm great with prospects. I'm great doing thought leadership. I'm not good in front of a spreadsheet all day. Tim, my president, who's like him and I like talk every single day on the phone. He like loves that stuff, right? He's a former NCAA basketball coach and former accountant. Like he's perfect for that role as president. And together we're much stronger than we are apart. 
And that's something that once you get comfortable with that and you lose your ego, you find you actually become much more successful. That's cool. That's cool. What role do habits or routines, things that sound almost like drudgery, you know what I mean, (laughs) or the commonplace, what role do habits or routines play in creative thought or creative work? Well, one of the habits I think is actually most interesting is, so in the book, I outline these four patterns I found that these great creatives do. And I call them the four laws of the creative curve. And the first one is one that I thought was really surprising. So there's this social media meme, you might have seen it, that's like 90% of people consume, 9% engage, 1% create, hashtag hustle. And it's this kind of like, A, it's just stupid. But B, it's wrong because one of the things I found that was so interesting is one of the habits of these great creators is that they're actually some of the biggest consumers of creative products. You know, we talk about how creators and consumers are sort of on opposite sides of the equation, right? Consumers are just taking it in. Creators are actually doing. But actually, because familiarity is so important, because creating stuff that will have some resemblance to something in the past is important, actually consuming is very, very critical to the creative process because it gives you that understanding from where to remix, from where to reference. And so I interviewed Ted Sarandos, chief content officer of Netflix. He told me this wonderful story about how when he was 18 years old, he got a job at a video store. I had to look up what these are, by the way, video rental stores. Apparently, it's like they an offline Netflix. Okay. Yeah, it's crazy. Alan, they were a thing. Crazy, crazy. Okay. And, um, and he decided that rather than do his homework, he would watch literally every single video in the store. Every single video in the store. And I was like, are you being hyperbolic? He's like, no. There were less movies, but I watched every single video in the store. And you see this pattern over and over again. J.K. Rowling famously, her parents would always fight. She'd close her bedroom door and read. That was her escape. So she read lots and lots of books. In college, she had all these library finds. She had so many books out. And so you find that the prolific creators are also prolific consumers. And I think sometimes when we think about consumption, we think about creativity, we think, oh, I have to be a generalist. I should be a Renaissance man or woman. I should read a little about a lot. But these great creatives actually read a lot about a little. Mm-hmm. They go very, 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 very deep, go deep. in one niche. Yeah. And I think that's somewhat unappealing to us, but that is what's necessary to actually be able to really understand a field and really understand all of the sort of texture and nuance of the field. Mm-hmm. It also strikes me that some, some of the most incredible products and services and customer experiences lately that have been created and generated, manufactured and delivered empower the audience, the user, the consumer of them to be a creator themselves. I mean, we're, we're in the participatory era. Right. And I think it's so interesting. One of the things that I thought was fascinating when I was researching the book is that sociologists like love memes, like internet memes, like the silly images. They think they're the most fascinating thing because memes are one of these things where the structure of a meme is very, very laid out, right? Like Grumpy Cat I talk about in the book and Grumpy Cat it's like a picture of a grumpy cat, and the line of text on the top is something kind of straightforward, and the line on the bottom is something grumpy. So if you want to create a new grumpy cat meme, sure. it's pretty easy yeah. because the familiarity and novelty, that intersection is built in. Familiar structure, you add your own novel twist. Yeah. And so we're living in this era where there's all these really interesting things like that where it's really, really easy to be a creator if you're willing to like observe, do the work. There's distribution in ways there never was before. Right, things like Spotify, for example, you can be distributed right alongside Kanye West. Sure. Right, you're on the same platform, and so we are living in a really exciting era for creativity. But one of the things I worry about is that people need to remember that it's not just about distribution. 
It's also about awareness and recognition. Mm-hmm. And so there's a whole side of creativity to talk about in the book, which is you have to get people to actually care. Mm-hmm. You have to get people to actually pay attention. Mm-hmm. And that, again, goes to one of those things where a lot of creators don't like that stuff. But they don't have to, yeah. right? Find someone who does. Find yeah. someone who yep. you can work with. If you're yep. an artist, find a gallery owner. Yep. My last question to you has to do with the role that the AMA plays, uh, I believe, in the business universe. And that we, we see ourselves, our noble cause is to sort of be that warm campfire that a new manager or an aspiring leader can go to and sort of figure stuff out. You know what I mean? How to work with a team, how to manage people, how to take the larger view, how to be a better coach, you know, that kind of thing. What's in this book for a new manager or an aspiring leader? I think one of the things that every manager struggles with is how do you develop your people and how do you do that in an authentic, empathetic way? And the thing that I actually think that one of my takeaways as a CEO from writing this book is just realizing the amount of sort of social construct and constraints people put on themselves Mm -hmm. around creativity and around their own potential. Like the amount of times people's told things to me like, oh, well, like I'm just not that creative. Like Mm -hmm. I'm just not this. The science shows us that everyone has the same creative potential. If you have an IQ over 104, it turns out there's no correlation between IQ or creativity over an IQ of 104. You probably all, if you're listening to this podcast, you have an IQ over 104. And so one of the things that I think is really important for a new manager is really being able to coach your people around these sort of socially conditioned obstacles that people have put on themselves. I think so often mindset is one of the biggest problems that people have. And so if you can learn to coach your team to get over themselves, I think that's where you can actually get the best ROI from your coaching time. Mm -hmm. We've been speaking to Alan Gannett. He's the author of The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time. Alan, we could talk all day. Thank you so much for having me. Follow American Management Association on Twitter to learn more about upcoming free programs, the latest news, management insights, and special offers. You can follow us at A-M-A-N-E-T. That's A-M-A-N-E-T. Hope to tweet to you real soon. feedback very seriously here at the AMA. If you get a minute, you have some thoughts about this program or additional questions, just send an email to us at podcasts at amanet.org. 